I have a question for you. I bet you haven't thought of it today yet. When the tsunami hits, whose life will you save? We don't worry much about this in Atlanta, right? Um, don't live close enough to the coast. But last fall, Trisha and I had opportunity to visit Oregon. And everywhere we went, we saw signs. Tsunami hazard zone, right? So if you live in Oregon and Washington State, Pacific Northwest, you are reminded every day that the big earthquake is coming. And when it comes, a huge amount of water is going to rush inland. And that tsunami is going to wreak all kinds of havoc. You see these signs everywhere. And you also see, picture. Uh, there's a picture somewhere of one of these. There it is. It's a tsunami pod, right? It doesn't look very big, but the uh, design is that you lock yourself in there when you hear the tsunamis on the way, and then you ride out the wave quite literally, and you've got enough air and uh, water and food to sustain you until it's safe. And um, how many people can fit inside there, right? Only one person can fit inside this particular design. So you can imagine what might happen as you prepare for this disaster. You're living in this quiet, peaceful uh, seaside community where everybody knows each other and everybody loves each other. And then suddenly the tsunami is on the way and it's all about me first. If I can outrun you and get inside before you do, then too bad for you. Uh, So whatever sense of unity we have in our community is about to be ripped to shreds by a competition because the big wave is coming. And uh, maybe my thinking is um, is, uh, uh, I won and you lost and that proves that my life was worth saving more than yours. Or, Or maybe I'm important to the community. So it's, it's really... It's really fair that I should get inside the tsunami pod and you don't because I'm better than you. And I would never say that, but excuse me while I elbow you and run past you and save myself. Um, Whose life will you save when the tsunami hits? Some will be destroyed, lives lost. Others will survive, but at what cost? Right? Right? What if you survived the giant wave, but the way you did it was by hardening your heart against all your less fortunate neighbors? What if the way you survived was with this attitude of me first? Now, we don't have to think about that every day. We live in Atlanta. We're hours inland. That is not our disaster, right? The Apostle Paul in the first century, knew that a tsunami was coming, not a literal one, but this wave was about to crash on the church in the city of Philippi. And he knew that the church was going to be destroyed unless unless they could stop competing for first place with one another. This wave was coming to survive it. They have to have unity The only way they can get unity is through humility, 
to stop fighting to see who's best and first and most important. And so he writes this little letter that we call Philippians. It's important for us to stop for a minute and see that uh, the Bible is not a be nice book. The Bible is not a book of values. Unity is nice, so be nice and be unified. And humility is good, so be good and be humble. The, the Bible is not a book of values to help people be nice. The Bible is a survival guide for people who live in the tsunami danger zone. The Bible is all about the difference between life and death and surviving this world without a heart that is hardened against other people. And that's how we want to listen to the book of Philippians today. Philippians is one of the prison epistles. They're called that because the Apostle Paul wrote them while he was in prison. To give a little bit of background, let's uh, look at sort of his travels. He took a journey early in his career as Apostle Missionary that focused on a region called Galatia. So a couple weeks ago, we learned about Galatians and how this tsunami of false teaching about Jesus swept through that area after Paul had started churches throughout the region of Galatia. Paul had said, you survive this world by trust in Jesus. And this false teaching swept in like a wave after him and said, no, you survive by Jesus plus something else. You survive by Jesus plus doing the things that show that you're better than other people. You, you survive by Jesus plus showing you're one of the right people, not one of the wrong people. You survive by Jesus plus I'm better. Now, Paul took some other journeys too. He took a, a second missionary journey that was wider ranging The one thing we want to notice about this map right now is that in that top corner is the Roman colony of Philippi. Paul went on a third missionary journey. The travel was more complex. It lasted longer. If We could show that map, but you'll see that it too took him to the city of Philippi. And it ended in Jerusalem where Paul was arrested. He was arrested because he knew he was about to be murdered. He didn't do anything wrong. He said, I really want to go to jail to be kept safe from the people who want to kill me. And so, in prison, I believe, and many believe, in Rome, there's some debate about where he was kept in prison while he wrote the prison epistles. He wrote several letters, uh, books of the New Testament. Philippians is one of them. And you're going to hear in a moment, as James reads the Scripture, You're going to hear a reference to that because Paul is going to say, I'm not sure if I'm going to be let out of this prison or not. I don't know if I'm going to get to come see you again or not. Here I am in jail, probably in Rome, and there you are in Philippi, a long way away. And I don't know whether I'm going to see you again. But no matter what happens to me, you've got to get ready. Because that Galatian tidal wave is sweeping westward and it's about to hit Philippi. And that false message that you survive this world, you survive judgment by God, but 
You survive all the temptations to live a me first life by Jesus plus something else. That is coming. So you have to get ready. So he boils down the essence of what he has to say to this church in just a couple of sentences. So our scripture reading today is very short, but absolutely critical for the survival of people who live in constant danger of that me first tsunami. James, will you read for us? Thank you. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 1, verses 27 and 28. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for those of you who are with us today for the first time or, or haven't been around in town uh, long enough to, to pick up on it, we're, we're kind of in the middle of a series of teaching that's going to take about three years to complete. We're just kind of working our way through the whole Bible and um, doing kind of a crazy thing, which is I'm going to try to preach the, a whole book of the Bible in one sermon. Uh, and we do that for a few weeks and then we come up from air and do other things. So uh, most Sundays we, we snorkel, we get down below the surface and see what's going on in Scripture. But on these Sundays we're water skiing, we're like going fast and covering a lot of ground. So a, a lot of, uh, what, why is the book of Philippians even in the Bible? Why does it matter to us? Why should we care? And the answer is, that tsunami is coming. You heard in our scripture reading references to that. Paul says, um, I want to know that you will stand firm. You don't have to stand firm when things are going great, right? You stand firm when, when there's danger or a threat. He says, stand firm in one spirit, contending. Contending is a, is a, is a, is a fight word. Right? There, there's something that needs to be struggled against, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. The good news about Jesus is being perverted into good news about Jesus plus something else that proves you deserve it more than anyone. And Paul wants to say, you've got to get ready for that. I want you to contend for the faith of the gospel without being frightened by those who oppose you. The tsunami is coming. There are people who oppose you and I don't want you to be frightened. I want you to be prepared. So you have to have unity, right? I want you to stand firm in one spirit contending as one man. Well, now, there's a more literal way to translate that phrase one man it would be one soul and and the metaphor here is one that comes from battle in the ancient world soldiers being such a unit that when they fight it's like one soul is guiding all of them together that through through a regimen of discipline and camaraderie that they share together they are ready to face the challenge as one. 
one soul inhabiting a large number of bodies. Now, of course, Paul's not praying that that will literally happen. (laughs) But there would be such unity among the church in this little Roman colony of Philippi that when the wave of Jesus plus me first, Jesus plus I'm better, Jesus plus I'm the right kind of person, not the wrong kind of person. When that arrives, you will have one response, unified, to say, no, no, our hope isn't in Jesus plus anything else. Our hope is in Jesus alone. I don't always do this. Charlene, it's really good to see you here today. I like to look at faces while I'm preaching. That's the only way I know how to preach, right? And so uh, I get to see visitors, people who are here from uh, far away. Thanks for being with us today. I won't call you out either um, unless I know you really well. So you have to have unity. And unity can only grow in the soil of humility. I don't see the word humility in those sentences. But we do see the concept of humility. Because look at what Paul says. I, I want you to do one thing. Can we back up one, one, one thought here? I, I want you to do one thing. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we're conditioned to mishear that language. We have trained ourselves to hear the word worthy as though it is asking you to prove that you deserve the love of Jesus. Show that you are worth it. That's the way we're conditioned to hear this language. That is not what this language means when the Apostle Paul uses it. The whole of the book of Philippians argues in the opposite direction. This this worth language is about comparative worth. One thing is worth more than another. Your life is not worth as much as Jesus. So whatever happens, whether I'm let out of prison and I get to come help you prepare for the tsunami together, or whether I'm stuck here and executed you got to get ready to do this one thing. Live in a way that shows how much the good news about Jesus is worth. Do you hear humility in that? The opposite of humility is living to show how much you are worth. Pride, arrogance, me first, I'm better, I'm superior. Get out of my way. I belong in the tsunami pod. You're nothing. Let me show how much I'm worth. And Paul says, no. The only way you can have the humility it takes to really foster the unity that you have to have is to live in a way that shows the worth of Jesus, not the worth of yourself. And then the rest of the book of Philippians is just working out that one concept. So we live to show that Jesus is worth more than... Some of the things that we tend to value the most that prove our worth. So if we could look at the next slide, Jesus is worth more than our achievements. 
let me just read these verses quickly from, from Philippians 3. You can follow along uh, the text there. You'll see highlighted some words that would have proved Paul's achievements in his own day and in his own culture. If anybody thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe from which the first king of Israel came, Saul. Royal DNA in my blood. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, Paul already told us that he's from Israel. One way to interpret this claim, a Hebrew of Hebrews, is to say, I'm not just from Israel ethnically. I have mastered the Hebrew language. I'm serious about my Bible. I'm serious about my scriptures. I'm serious about my Judaism. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm not a slacker. I do more than I have to. Scripture required fasting one day a year on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees fasted 52 times a year. I'm 52 times more than I have to be. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You want reasons to say, I belong in the tsunami pod ahead of you? I got a long list of achievements. Some of these things I achieved by inheritance. I was just born into a great family. I was born into a good tribe. I was born into the right ethnicity. I was born into the right language group. And some of my achievements are based on my own effort. Not all Jews chose to be Pharisees. I did. Not all Jews chose to persecute the church. I did. And Paul is saying, when the tsunami hits, that's that's what's going to bubble up. Jesus plus, I have achieved a lot. Jesus plus, I was born on the right side of the divisions that matter most. Jesus plus, I have done more, tried harder than anybody else. And Paul says... You're not going to survive without unity. You can't have unity without humility. You can't have humility if you're living to show how much your achievements are worth. So whatever happens, get ready by living to show Jesus is worth more than all of that. And so he goes on in the text to say, but now everything is different. Now those things that I thought were worth so much are worth nothing to me. Whatever was once to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. This is accounting language. The things I thought were assets, I now know are liabilities. What is more, I consider everything a liability. Everything is a loss compared to to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, rubbish, excrement, sewage, so that I may gain Christ. You hear what Paul is saying? He's not just saying my achievements are worth zero. A liability is not worth zero. It is worth negative. It is worth less than zero. Paul is saying something 
got a hold of me and shifted my whole way of looking at the world so that now I, who used to delight in saying how much my achievements are worth, I now delight in only one thing. Look how much Jesus is worth. This God-man who would volunteer to take on flesh and blood and to live a perfect life that I should be living but, but can't because I'm so busy showing how important I am. And then to die a death that he did not deserve in order to take God's anger and disappointment away from me and instead share with me all the good things that he alone deserves. Look how much Jesus is worth. Let's look at the next slide and see that Jesus is worth more than something else too. He's worth more than our reputation. You understand here when Paul is talking about his own life, he's not talking about himself at all. That every time in the book of Philippians, Paul says something about his own life, what he's really doing is saying, look what Jesus can do. Look at how Jesus' power takes a hold of somebody and changes them. Did that with respect to achievements. Paul talks about that in Philippians 3, Philippians 1. Paul says something about reputation. Listen, as he writes, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Envy, rivalry, not humility, not unity. Others preach Christ out of goodwill. The the latter, the ones who preach Christ out of goodwill, do so in love. They know that I am put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, do so out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. What's Paul talking about? He's saying, look, some people are gloating over the fact that I am in jail now. They're saying, see, he's not such a big shot after all. When the tsunami hits, he ain't even going to be able to run for the tsunami pod. He can't get past the guards in the jail. He's a loser. He's weak. Don't listen to his Jesus-only message. Listen to our Jesus-only message. At this point in Philippians, Paul is not saying, hey, these people who are preaching out of selfish ambition, they're actually preaching the wrong thing. He's not saying that at all. Listen to what he goes on to say, right? But what does it matter? What difference does it make? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Here's Paul saying, I have some misguided brothers and sisters in Jesus who are motivated to preach because they want to show that they're better preachers than I am. They want to spread the gospel because they want to show that they're strong and I'm weak. But the message they're preaching is spot on and it's all about Jesus. And so the only harm they're causing is to my reputation. And I can live with that. 
I can live with that. In fact, I can be real happy about that. If the only thing being harmed is my reputation, I'm okay. Because it's worth less than zero. Now, look, we're not being naive, right? Paul's a real human being. The gospel, believing in Jesus, doesn't make you have to become a pretend person. Paul isn't saying, oh, man, I love it when people run me down and and attack me and uh, try to show that I'm nothing. I really like that. He doesn't say that at all. He says, look, they're motivated by envy and rivalry. Let's be honest. Let's say what this really is. It is self-centered ambition. And I wish they wouldn't do it. I wish they were motivated by love. But they're not preaching that Jesus plus message. So it's not the reputation of Jesus that's being tarnished by them. It's only my reputation. Now later in Philippians 3, he has something very different to say about people who are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. He calls them dogs. Right? When it's the reputation of Jesus that's being tarnished, Paul is concerned to show how much Jesus is worth. When it's his own reputation that's being tarnished, Paul is concerned to show how much Jesus is worth. How much freedom if you just didn't have to retaliate anymore? If it was just okay? If you got thrown under the bus every once in a while. I felt it yesterday. I have to tell you. Um, graduated from Covenant Seminary. Taught at Covenant Seminary for 10 years. I love that place. I love those people. I read a message written yesterday that uh, kind of systematically worked through the past and current faculty of Covenant Seminary. Saying how faithless these people are and how dangerous their teaching is and how... We're being led astray from Christ and the pure teaching of Scripture. And by extension, I feel like I'm 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 being attacked. Right? You're telling me I'm not good at choosing my friends. On that list were guys that I call once every few months for advice about important things. I don't like it. I want to lash out. I want to write a real long letter rebutting every... I wanted to write an email to the home church of the people who wrote this message and say, discipline them. Kick them out. Drop the hammer on them. If the reputation of Jesus is being tarnished, I need to get worked up. But if it's only my reputation, if it's only the reputation of other human beings who are just as flawed and fallible as I am, what freedom. I don't have to get all worked up. I don't have to spend the next 48 hours letting that consume me. I can be here doing something else. Not letting Jesus' words come out of my mouth while my heart is really attacking other people defending my reputation. What freedom Jesus offers us when we begin to live this life that's not about showing how much we are worth, but whatever happens, conducting ourselves in a manner that shows the worth of the good news about Jesus, worth more than anything we've ever accomplished, worth more than our reputation, 
And at the end of Philippians chapter 4, Paul's going to say he's worth more than our circumstances too. I know what it is to be in need. I'm not naive. I'm not pretending. I'm not saying all of life is easy once you learn to live in a way that shows how much Jesus is worth. Being in need is hard. I know what it is to live in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned a secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether I'm well-fed or hungry, I think Paul would say, give me a choice, I'll take well-fed every time. But that's not the thing that matters most in my world anymore. Whether living in plenty or in want. I've learned how to live on both sides of that. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Sports are big in the southeast. Jesus is big in the southeast. So you know what that verse really means. I can always win the game if I write Jesus somewhere on one of my articles of clothing. Right? In the context, we know what Paul is saying. I can do all things doesn't mean I can always win. I can do all things means whether I win or lose. Jesus means more to me than my circumstances. Whether I get the big paying contract or I lose out on it to somebody who is slightly better than me for the job. It's going to be okay. Because Jesus is worth more to me than my circumstances. And some of you will say, Egan, what the heck do you know about living through hard circumstances? I mean, you're kind of white, upper middle class, PhD, senior pastor. You sort of got it going on. Now, listen, I know I don't really, right? But big picture, what do I know? I know what it's like to go without income for two years, as Tricia and I did when I was studying for a Ph.D. We lived off sheer grace for two years. We had no income. We knew we had about half what we needed to make it in the bank, our savings, and then just trusting God to give us food. I've sat on the other side of the ocean and said to a banker, you do not understand your mix-up sending our debit card to the wrong address means I cannot buy diapers for my baby today. You must fix this now. How do you think that conversation went? This was a big bank after four mergers or so and buyouts, and now I'm talking to somebody who has no clue where we are or who we are or why we need that little card. I spent most of my life growing up living in a mobile home. The other part of my life, I lived in houses that I helped my dad to build because we couldn't afford to buy a house. So quite literally, this man who knows how to do everything from draw up the plot at the courthouse to drive the bulldozer, my dad is good at so many things. We built the houses that we lived in. Right now, I'm I'm living on the plenty side of this ledger. I've known what it is to be in need, to be in want. 
Now, not, not in the same way that many other people in the world have known. But this is telling us, man, you get caught up in trying to show that your circumstances are better than everyone else's, you will never stop. That's a hamster wheel that just keeps turning. If you get caught trying to show that your circumstances now are better than they were in the past, you will never stop. And when the wave comes and somebody says, you know what, this Jesus thing is pretty good, but Jesus plus showing that you're better is even better. Like, oh, I love my Jesus and I love my reputation. I love my Jesus and I love my comfortable circumstances when there's plenty and no want. I love my Jesus and I love making sure everybody knows about my achievements. There's freedom that we have to enjoy real unity because we have real humility to start asking a totally different kind of question. Hey, Jesus, is there something I could sacrifice that would make someone else's circumstances better? I'm free from having to put all my worth in that basket. What could I give up that would help improve somebody else's life? Show me. Because you're worth more to me than everything else put together. Jesus, is there some insult or offense or difficulty that I could endure that would make other people think more highly of you? I'm free to ask that kind of question now. And to really mean it. (laughs) Jesus, is there some way I could celebrate the achievements of other people? Instead of just my own? If you're in this room, you rolled your eyes about Black History Month at least once in your life. I'm going to predict that. Unless you're younger than 25. I may be wrong about that cutoff. But if you're older than 35... And you're not black. You probably roll your eyes once at least about Black History Month. Oh, man. Again. It's just one small way that, that our culture is asking us to do something that as Christians should come very naturally to us. To celebrate the achievements of other people. And not just our own. I didn't just say that that what in town needs most is is a big Black History Month every year. No, something much more profound than that. Make sure that when we roll our eyes, we're not rolling our eyes against the calling of Jesus to learn how to celebrate the achievements of people who are different from us. To see things that we wouldn't recognize as achievements as such. There's an opportunity coming up just weeks away for us to learn that lesson from Jesus. 
And I let it flow out in many, many ways. Lord Jesus, thank you for the reminder coming at me through the channel of culture now, through the channel of gospel. Help me to see someone today who would really be encouraged if I would celebrate something that they have achieved. You were born outside the U.S.? What a great thing. Tell me more about it. Maybe I didn't always think that was something worth celebrating. Oh, Jesus is worth more than everything to me now, so I can look at these things in a really different way. Knowing Jesus changes everything. Should, has the power to, potential to. It's not automatic. Paul was in a prison cell when he took time to write these words on a page because he knew it wasn't automatic. We're not going to get there immediately, overnight, perfectly. But knowing about Jesus has a potential to change everything. Because it makes us ask this kind of question. When the tsunami was about to hit, whose life did Jesus save? Let's pray together. Jesus, make that question linger over us today and all throughout this week until we see the answer in full blazing glory that there in the garden of tears, as we were singing earlier, you chose to bear a heavy load that was not your own. You could have lived a life that celebrated your own worth, but as we confessed earlier, you did not see equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but you humbled yourself. When the tsunami was about to hit, you saved the lives of other people. And when we fully grasp what that means, it has the power to change everything. Would you change us, Lord Jesus? Amen.